Do you know why the hunters are drawn to this nightmare? Because it sprouted from their very misdeeds. Things that some would rather keep secret. A pitiful tale of petty arrogance, really. High time someone exposed the whole charade. Hey there, welcome to the Lord to Death podcast. My name's Brett, and today I want to talk about something a little different. Something that is not directly explained, but rather inferred through tiny glimpses into a world that we did not walk through. Today, I want to talk about the Hunter's Curse in Bloodborne, and in turn, the Fishing Hamlet, the Hunters, and Bergenworth. If you know anything about the From Software games, then you know that the story within them is rather enigmatic. Very little is told directly, and the story is hidden in item descriptions that we must piece together to get to the bottom of it, and even then there is plenty left to the imagination. I wanted to preface that because the story that I'm about to tell is an interpretation of the lore from my standpoint. There might not be one right answer, as is often the case with cosmic horror, but this is what I believe to be true, and this is my interpretation. This is going to be maybe a little different than usual, maybe a little bit more storytelling and a little less facts. So sit back, relax, and let me paint you a picture of salvation, discovery, and madness. Once there was a fishing hamlet, a peaceful, introverted place where the inhabitants lived just off the coast. It wasn't much, but it was home to the few who resided there. In the center of town, there was a market surrounded by decrepit wooden lodges and a deep well that connected to the caverns below that led to the sea. Diligently, the workers resided in peace until one day, a wondrous thing occurred. Washed upon their shores, the size of a fishing boat, an incomprehensible mass of scales, fins, limbs, and even a vaguely human face beneath a mass of tentacles. Somewhere between a mollusk, an octopus, and a human, with white skin and scales hinted with shades of blue, its name was Kos, sometimes referred to as Cosm, and it was not of this world that the residents knew. It was something far beyond their comprehension. Kos, however, washed upon the shore a carcass, dead, or at least its physical form was no longer living. The villagers wondered if this might be the corpse of a god, who, prior to this day, might have lurked offshore and provided the hamlet with bountiful fish and squids, and that it should be revered and worshipped. Whatever it was, its corpse brought with it two things, strange man-of-war-like parasites and a fetus. With the evidence of impregnation, one might wonder if they should call Kos a she, but the incomprehensible nature of who or what Kos is or was would lead us to believe that it is far beyond he or she, for it was one of the Great Ones. The Great Ones were multidimensional beings that transcended human understanding, and had no desires or motives that we might understand, for they were something entirely different than us. The strange parasites that lived within Kos were harvested by the village folk, believing that they were a gift from the fallen god. It seems that the villagers were extracting oils from the parasites to be used in explosive urns and lanterns, which burned brighter than conventional oils. They may have also taken the flesh as a bounty and consumed it, as it started to change them. Whether it was through the worship of this being and the cosmic power that was emanating from the corpse of Kos, or the handling of the parasites, the people started physically changing. 
hunching over and becoming an amphibian-human hybrid. Their skin slowly became slick with scales, their digits webbed and fins protruding from their limbs and back, slowly resembling something like Koss. But the people weren't the only things that were changing. The hamlet itself was changing as well. A seeming neglect allowed flooding to happen in the streets. Houses began falling apart, and barnacles began growing on surfaces all around. The villagers, however, seemed to hardly care about their home falling apart. They continued to fish, harvest parasites, and most importantly, worship Koss, seemingly unaware of their livelihood descending into madness all around them. Fishermen became priests, attempting to commune with Koss and possibly others to develop a closer connection to their newfound religion. But, as introverted as they were, they could not keep this a secret from everyone in the surrounding area. The scholars of a nearby Bergenworth took notice of the happenings in the village, having an invested interest in the Great Ones themselves. A small distance away from the fishing hamlet was a town called Yarnum, and in it there was Bergenworth College, a research building overlooking a lake whose teaching delved into the arcane knowledge of the cosmos and the Great Ones that inhabit it. The scholars of Bergenworth found a labyrinth below Yarnum, and inside it they discovered the old blood and the existence of Great Ones through human hybrids known as kin, beings that were transformed much like those in the fishing hamlet. This led to the desire to ascend beyond their mortal shells and become gods themselves. To this end, some scholars experimented with the old blood, using its unnatural healing properties to delve further into the labyrinth, while some, like Master Willem, shunned its use, saying that they would be undone by the blood, to fear the old blood. He believed instead that to achieve a higher existence, they must be able to see what the Great Ones see that they cannot. For that, they needed insight. They may have taken the word insight too literally and believed that in order to truly see, they needed more eyes. Many took to attempting to line their brain and skull with more eyes so that they could see from within. A trend came to prominence that one should blindfold themselves, like Master Willem did, so that they were not inhibited by false sight given to them by their own eyes. The Labyrinth Prospectors went further down in search of something that would give them the means to ascend but most fell to madness and never returned. The madness nor death stopped them from their goal. They were getting desperate, until one day they learned of a corpse that washed upon the shore of a small fishing hamlet and the residents that took to worshipping it. The Bergenworth scholars, accompanied by hunters Maria and Lawrence, among others, set out for the hamlet to witness a breakthrough in their search for godhood. What they saw were people who were mutated, abhorrent, yet clearly touched by the power of a great one. They began their inquisition upon the residents to learn what was causing them to transform, and thus began possibly the darkest chapter for Bergenworth and the hunters. They began torturing the residents, cutting open their heads and crushing their skulls to find the eyes that would line them, to find the reason that they were being chosen to become something greater. And this ultimately led them to Koss, the beached great one, what exactly happened next and the atrocities they committed to its corpse was not documented, and I think that was hardly a mistake. They harvested its eldritch blood and took the fetus that laid inside its belly. Master Willem, in his depraved search for insight, sought the umbilical cord to elevate his being and thoughts to those of a great one, lining his brain with eyes. The only choice, he knew, if man were ever to match their greatness. 
for every great one loses its child and then yearns for a surrogate. This chord granted Mensis audience with Murgo, but resulted in the stillbirth of their brains. And Odin, the formless great one, was no different. It was corrupted blood that began this eldritch liaison. The third umbilical cord precipitated an encounter with the pale moon, which beckoned hunters and conceived the hunter's dream, and a contract was established between hunter and great one. These are all descriptions that we get from different umbilical cords, and from them we know that they grant a great power, an audience with a great one. Ingesting the umbilical cord of a great one was the first step towards understanding their power and becoming a god. The scholars and hunters continued their blasphemous acts against the villagers and Kos. While Kos appeared as a corpse, their mind was very much alive and present in the cosmos. Whether it be by her power, or the power of her unborn child, her orphan, the hunters and scholars were condemned to a never-ending nightmare, presumably after the victims of their assault prayed to Kos to curse them for their sins. A curse was laid upon those who violated the body of Kos, and so their kin, their children, and their children's children would also be cursed. The hunter's nightmare was a purgatory that scholars and hunters alike would go to when they die in the waking world, forced to relive their sins for eternity. One hunter, Maria, could no longer stand idly by and engage in the slaughter of the fishing hamlet and the desecration of Kos's body. Out of guilt, unable to stomach her actions, she took her weapon, Rakuyo, an heirloom from her home in Canehurst and cast it down the well in the center of town and took her own life. Dead in the waking world, her mind was cast into the hunter's nightmare, where she laid as vigil between the research hall and the fishing hamlet in a clock tower. Who knows how long had passed until a hunter came to that clock tower where she lay and woke her from her deathly sleep. A corpse should be left well alone, she said, referring to Koss and perhaps giving herself advice in hindsight. The nightmares themselves are on another plane of existence. Likened before to purgatory, all dreams and nightmares alike that were created by the Great Ones were akin to the circles of hell. They were stacked on top of one another in a realm separate from the waking world. Since the Great Ones created the nightmares, the only way to end them is to find the Great One within and slay them. Just like the Nightmare of Mensis or the Hunter's Dream, the hunter's nightmare was ended when the same hunter who woke Lady Maria made their way to the shores where Kos lay and put down her kin. It was an unsightly beast, humanoid in shape with a skeletal frame and a twisted expression locked in a rictus grin. The hunter watched it climb from the womb of its mother while it lamented at the moon before engaging in a fight where they would put it down. Of course, this physical form was just a manifestation of the nightmare. There was no physical offspring that survived as we mentioned before that the Great Ones always have a stillbirth and that they require a surrogate. The true form of the orphan was a spirit that lingered by its mother and was set free when the hunter caused it to scatter, ending the nightmare. The secrets of the church and Bergenworth laid bare, their sins no longer being sheltered from the world. One hunter entered the nightmare of their own free will and ended it. But for what reason? Was it to cover it all up again, or was it to lay the spirit of cost to rest and make things right? Ultimately, it's up to you to decide. You can find us online at Lord to Death on your favorite social media or podcast websites. And remember, a corpse should be well left alone. Curiosity killed the cat, and it condemned generations to an unending nightmare. The next time you think to profit off of the loss of another, turn around. 
leave. Some secrets are best kept as such. And until next time, see ya! <laughs>